anything from the age of 15 to 28. They weren't all that old. Jesus was the perfect model of bringing up the next generation and showing them God in a way that meant that they followed uh, God and followed his plan for their lives. But we don't often think of them as kids, do we, these disciples? Have a little think for a moment. Think about who is it that you really look up to in life? Maybe someone famous, maybe a historical figure. Have a think for a moment. Who is the greatest in your eyes? Who is someone that, I don't know, if you had the chance, you'd want to spend time with them? Who is it? You can shout it out to me. Oh, Bert. Congratulations, that man. You have just modeled how to honor your spouse. I'm sorry, Brian. Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. Ali. Anyone else? Who else is the greatest? Andy Murray. Anthony Joshua. You're so young. I'm so old. I don't know who that is. Anyone else? Anyone else who's like the best in your eyes? What about someone from this side? Apart from Angela. Your mum. Oh, if my kids can say things like that, I'll be very happy too. Thanks. <laughs> That's really great. Anyone else? Who else? Maybe someone, I don't know, a historical figure, someone, I don't know. Anyone else? Hmm? Billy Graham. It's funny, isn't it? We look to these people and we think they are wonderful. I wish I could be like that. I wish I could have some sort of character trait of theirs. I wish I could be successful. Do you know, society points us in this direction of success that I'm not sure is particularly helpful for us, is it? We, it, it? Society sets up this model of success for us and this model of something we should aspire to. And often the people that we're aspiring to, which is very nice to hear that that isn't the case for all of us in the room, but often the people we aspire to, they are rich, they are famous, they're powerful, they're influential people. And I'm not saying that they're not, they're all wonderful people. But isn't it true that society paints this picture of what success looks like for us? And then isn't it also true that there's quite a juxtaposition when we look in the Bible? So we're going to look at this, we're going to kind of drop in, parachute in, if you will, into Matthew 18. So I'll give you a moment to turn to that. That's in the New Testament. Uh, first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you'll be able to find that on there. We're going to chapter 18. That's the big number. And we'll be starting at uh, verse 1. This is another example of Jesus being quite controversial. I love that about Jesus. He's constantly doing something that shocks everyone. And it like shocks them out of their own habits. It shocks them out of their own ways of thinking. It shocks them out of their traditions, if you will, or their religious behavior. And this passage is no different. Picture the scene. The disciples have come back from the Sermon on the Mount. They've come back from seeing Jesus heal people. They've come back from seeing Jesus transfigured. That's a fancy word for this part um, in the Bible that describes Two of the disciples go up a mountain with Jesus, and this extraordinary big thing happens. Um, and God, heaven breaks through in that moment, 
and the disciples, as well as Jesus, get to see Moses and Elijah. Now, these are two people who are dead. These are two people who are in heaven. Can you imagine if you were sat reading your Bible one day, whatever a quiet time looks like for you, and all of a sudden you saw Moses and Elijah, actual Moses and Elijah in front of you? I mean, I don't think we can take the awe out of this moment. Isn't that incredible? The the disciples have just seen that happen. And so therefore, they now know how powerful Jesus is. They've suspected all along. They now know that he's the Messiah. They've come all the way through seeing him heal people, cast out demons, and all these incredible things. And they are sat in a little precious moment. As Jesus did, he retreats off with those that are closest to him. And they're sat around to listen to what Jesus has to say. And they've clearly been talking and discussing, isn't Jesus so amazing? Isn't Jesus so powerful? I wish I was that powerful. Which one of us is going to be the next one? Which one of us is the most powerful? Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so that's where we're dropping in. Matthew 18, verse 1. Yes, Brian, you're right. That was very subtle of you, unlike my interruption of yours. We should hand out Bibles. Does anyone want a Bible in their hand at this moment? Some of us like to tap or swipe to the Bible, but some of us do prefer a physical Bible in our hands. And so Brian is diligently going to hand us out a Bible. Do you know, if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take one of these and take it home with you. It is our gift to you. Share it with people. Okay. Chapter 18, verse 1 says this. It will come up on the screen behind me too. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Amen. Father God, we love your word. Father God, we believe that your word is true. And I pray for all of us as we hear your word and as I speak it out this morning, would you change us, Lord? God, just like Jesus um, sitting with his disciples with lots of people looking in on that situation, Lord, you shocked people out of their habits and out of the wrong way of thinking. Would you do that with us this morning? Amen. I am completely struck. I've been wrestling with this passage for a couple of weeks now, and I'm completely struck by this picture of them sitting around. And wouldn't we all do this with Jesus if we were one of the disciples? We would love being one of them, and like sitting in with Jesus, gathering round in this little circle, all pointing to Jesus and asking him, tell us, tell us your stuff. Like, tell us, Jesus, who's the best out of all of us? They're probably feeling pretty powerful themselves right now, aren't they? They're probably thinking, we're the greatest. Like, isn't this awesome? We get to see Jesus do all these things. And I think they're expecting Jesus, probably each one of them is expecting Jesus to turn to them and say, actually, it's you. Actually, it's you, Pam. 
you're the best. I love you. You're great. You're going to be as powerful as me. Or they're expecting, maybe, maybe they're looking at other people thinking, it's not going to be me, but it's definitely going to be them. We do that even in church, don't we? We look around and go, they're great. Like when they pray, oh, stuff happens. I don't even know how to pray like they pray. Or they read their Bible like all the time. It's definitely going to be them. We all think that, don't we? But look what Jesus does. He calls a little child to him. So imagine the scene. They're in a circle. They're pointing to Jesus and asking him who's the best. And what does Jesus do? He opens up the circle. He looks out with the circle. And he finds the person who is the most lowly in their society. You see, what we have to remember is that back then, women were nowhere near on the same level as men. And what we have to realize is that children were even lower than that. Also, what we have to remember is what that means is girls were even lower than that. And so theologians would tell you that this was probably a girl that Jesus invited in to the circle. He causes them all, instead of looking at themselves, instead of loving this holy moment, he causes them all to look out and find the meekest of people in society and to bring them in. For me, I could stop talking now. For me, that's like the best picture of how we should live. Not remaining a holy, beautiful place, not remaining this wonderful place that experiences Jesus when we worship, but being a place who does that and then opens the doors wide and goes and finds the meekest of society, goes and finds the people who may not find their way into church because they don't feel like they belong. I'm completely in awe of what Jesus does here because it's not what they expect him to do. And it's absolutely not what people who are sitting around would be expecting him to do. In fact, the people sitting around were probably shocked and like, oh my goodness, what's Jesus doing now? And probably someone I can imagine, I'm just using my own imagination here because, you know, I like to do that. But probably lots of them were thinking, oh my goodness, someone needs to go and take that child away. Poor Jesus. Like, you see that in only a few chapters after this, where parents are bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples and all the other people are going, oh no, 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 don't bother Jesus right now. Don't bother him. Off you go. And it's Jesus that says, let the children come. He's challenging how we think. He's challenging how we behave. And before I say anything else, how many of us are remembering this morning that actually we're all children? I don't know if maybe this is something you ponder a lot. Maybe you contemplate the fact that you're a child of God often. Maybe it's something you've never heard before. But we are all children of God. And so everything I'm about to say about children is true of us. Everything I'm about to say about how we should treat children is true of us. It's true of all of us because we are children of God. You know, in this series, we've had a phrase um, that, that kind of came to Chuck and Tara and our lead pastors when they were on sabbatical. That's a wonderful noise. It's like someone strumming the grass. Oh, I'm sorry if I've just offended someone. Sounds great. Um, 
this phrase, I know. I do have a filter, I promise. I'll engage it now. This phrase is all of me for all of him. All of me for all of him. Not a little bit of me and all of him. Not a little bit of me and some of him, but all of me for all of him. And Taryn spoke quite a while ago now um, from another passage in Matthew that talks about the wide and the narrow gate, the broad road and the narrow road. And the truth is that we could choose the broad road. The broad road is completely open to all of us. The broad road is the road that all of us were on before we knew Jesus. And the truth is the broad road is where everyone is on if they don't follow Jesus. The truth is on the broad road, you can do exactly what you like. On the broad road, you can have your cake and eat it. On the broad road, you can treat people how you like. You can spend your money how you want to. You can do exactly what you want at any given moment. You can follow your desires all the way through to the end. That affects your entire life, doesn't it? It affects how you spend your money, who you spend your time with, who you sleep with. It affects everything. And on the broad road, you can do all of those things. But the truth is, when Jesus calls us, he calls us onto a much narrower road. And he asks us to change. And that's the first thing I can see from this passage here. Verse 3. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hands up if you like change. Excellent. Yes, there are a couple of people. Great. I love change. If I'm the one who's changed it. I love change if I've instigated the change. I'm sure lots of you feel this way, right? So I used to change furniture in our house a lot. I can't do it quite so much in the house that we're in now. Uh, but Brian used to often come home and find that the living room was now the dining room and the dining room was now the living room and that the entire kitchen had been flipped around. I love change. I love it. It brings me joy if I'm the one who's chosen to change things. But isn't it true that actually when someone else changes our world without our say-so, we're not a fan? We don't like it, do we? It's painful. All of our humanness rises up in that moment. All of our many emotions rise up in that moment, not least pride. <laughs> We're not fans when we haven't instigated the change. But change is what Jesus asks us to do. He doesn't ask us to do it just once. It's not, oh, now you've accepted Jesus into your life. That's it. That was your change. That was your change for you. And now things will remain the same for the rest of your life and all will be well. Jesus asks us to be in a constant state of change. And the way Paul describes that is that we're constantly moving into a place of Christ-likeness. So he's asking us to re-evaluate everything that we're doing and everything that we're thinking to be more like him. I heard a story this week of a youth worker, Zeke Rink, actually, um, who heads up our youth across the whole of the vineyard. When he first moved into the area that he lives in now, uh, he heard, or within the space of a week of living there, he heard of three murders. And they were of the estate right next door to the estate that he'd moved into. 
Have you heard this story? Yes, my kids are going, yes, we've heard this story. Um, and in that estate, the, the three murders had happened and they'd been committed by young people, very young people. Now, Zeke is called to youth ministry. He knew that at that point. And he, instead of feeling fearful, which is what all the other neighbors in his area were thinking, oh my goodness, we should leave. We should sell our houses and get out of here. This place is not safe for us. What Zeke and his friend thought was we need to bring Jesus into this community. We need to go physically into that community and tell people about Jesus. And so that's what they did. Two of them went round the estate every single day and just spoke to people. And they describe this moment where they come across a guy who's on a motorbike, still got his helmet on, actually looks quite intimidating. He's got two phones, one in each hand. Uh, and Zeke describes knowing that he has to go and speak to this guy, but being terrified. And so he goes over, he speaks to this man, and basically just asks him what he's up to. Who, you know, who, who, are, who are you? What are you up to today? And the guy opens up his visor and says, I'm actually the drug dealer on this estate, and I'm currently waiting on, on people coming to pick up their packages. Now, if that were me, well, actually, if that were me, I, I probably wouldn't have gone over to the guy in the first, I wouldn't have even gone into the estate because I would be so terrified. Of course, unless God had asked me to. But what Zeke and this other guy do is they say, has anyone ever prayed for you before? A simple phrase. And the guy's like kind of shocked out of his, because he was kind of a bit manic at the time, shocked out of that and says, actually, yes. He takes off his helmet and he said, when I was in prison only a few months ago, I did an alpha course and someone told me about Jesus. But if I'm honest, as soon as I came back out, life resumed as normal, I can't change. I know I need to, but I can't. There are so many people, maybe even in this room, and I'm probably even speaking to myself, who don't believe change is possible. We look at the things in our lives that we know are wrong, we look at the things in our lives that are tough, and we think, I can't change that. I can't do anything about that, it's not gonna change. We even go as far to think, that's just me. That part of me won't change, that's just who I am. Or that's just them, they'll not change, it's just who they are. Or that's just this place, it ju it's just how this place operates. But Jesus is asking us to change. Would Jesus ask us to do something that was impossible? Maybe, actually, in our own strength, maybe. But he wouldn't ask us to do something that was impossible with him, right? We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So if Jesus is asking each one of us to change, then it has to be possible. It has to be possible. And the change that they're talking about here is not just changing furniture when you feel like it. It's not just a little change. The word that is used here is strepho, S-T-R-E-P-H-O in the Greek translation. The translation of that word, actually change is not really the best word. And often you find that in the Greek is that the English word that we use to translate it doesn't really encompass the fullness of what that word means. But what this word means is turning away from the things in our lives that aren't from God and turning towards 
God. Does anyone know of another word that we would use that means that, turning away from God and towards God? Shout it out, Liz. I know you want to. Go on. I can hear you. Repentance, right? So we've just taken communion. And part of communion, that sharing in that family moment, sharing in the power of Jesus, it's a repentance moment too. It's a moment where we recognize the things in our lives that are not brilliant, the things in our lives that we know are not like God, and saying, Jesus, you died on the cross for that. I'm giving it back to you right now, and I'm going to receive your grace. I'm going to receive your mercy. I'm going to receive your forgiveness. And then walking in that freedom. Change doesn't just mean a little thing, and it also doesn't mean shame. It doesn't mean condemnation. So I don't want any one of us to think that I'm standing up here saying, you must all change. You're all terrible people, you crazy sinners. That's not what this message is. This message is we all need to change, all of us, because we all fall short of the glory of God. It means recognizing those things in our lives and not staying in the place of shame or condemnation, but of walking into the freedom that God has for us, the freedom that he paid the price on the cross for, We need to be willing to change. The next thing from this passage is that we must be willing to be lowly. What a great word is that, lowly. We must be lowly, the lowest of the low. Has anyone heard of a reverse advent calendar? Yeah, it's becoming quite a thing, hasn't it? So reverse advent calendar, for those who don't know, the concept of an advent calendar is that each day you get something. Each day you open it up and there's chocolate. Or, you know, if you're really lucky, blessed, you open up a door and you get something even more wonderful than a piece of chocolate. Like, there are crazy advent calendars right now that you get Lego, and by the time it's all finished, you've got this beautiful little Lego scene. There are crazy calendars that have things like makeup in them. And yes, there are calendars that have a different flavor of gin in them every day. I know, I knew you were sat there thinking that. There are advent calendars that give us something every day. And the point of a reverse advent calendar is that we give something every day. So the the local food bank right now in Ellen are doing a reverse advent calendar. And so from the 1st of December, the idea was that you buy something each day or you take something from your cupboard each day and you put it into a bag and you give something every day. And by the time you get to the end of December, by the time you get to Christmas Day, you've got a whole bunch of stuff that you can give away. Reverse Advent. Reverse is something that Jesus is a master in. He reverses our thinking. He reverses all of the things in our lives that cause us to think that way. When we lean into him, he reverses things. He flips them around. And that's what he's doing right here in this picture. He's flipping their thinking from thinking about themselves and thinking, am I going to be the greatest? Am I? Could I even be second best? I'd actually be okay with third. Could it be me? Is it me? And he reverses it and he says, you've missed the point. This is actually not about any of us. Look at this child. 
unless you change and become like this child, you won't get into the kingdom. You can imagine them being a little bit disappointed in this moment, right? You can imagine them even being a bit like, are you kidding me? Do you know what I do for you, Jesus? We've walked for miles. We've stepped out of our comfort zone. We've given up our livelihoods. We've walked away from our families. And you're telling me that I need to be like this little child who, in that day, children just weren't even looked at. I mean, it wasn't even children should be seen and not heard. It was like children just aren't seen in society back then. You're telling me I need to be like that? And they're probably thinking, I don't want that. I want to be the greatest. Tell me who's the greatest, Jesus. Jesus is reversing their perception of what the greatest means. The greatest, in Jesus' eyes, is a child. The greatest, in the eyes of Jesus, is the person who is the lowest of the low. Why? Because he knows that that's where God would go. We see this all the way through the Gospels, don't we? Of Jesus going to people that no one else would go to. Of sitting with the Samaritan woman. And people are like, oh, oh my goodness. He shouldn't be seen, never mind be speaking to this woman. Like, we are enemies. He goes and sits with tax collectors. He touches a leper. And again, people would be like, no way. Oh my word, we need to pray for Jesus. He's clearly got it all wrong. He's going to hang out with all the people. We're the greatest. Why is he hanging out with them? And this situation is no different. He sat there with a child on his lap and he's saying, guys, you've missed the point. Look at this child. And you can imagine this child with a massive smile on their face. Like, yes, I'm sitting on the lap of Jesus. Children love Jesus, don't they? This child sat there, delighted, in awe, in one of the translations, in awe of Jesus. We were singing that song, actually, just not long ago, Shouldn't We Stand in Awe? Yes, we should, because he is beautiful, he is wonderful, he is mighty, and we should be in awe all the time of Jesus, like a child would. Like a child would look at this incredible thing. I mean, especially at this time of year. Any of you at the Christmas light switch on last weekend? When you see little children looking at the Christmas lights. When you see little children watching the parade. When you see little children looking at all the cool games that they get to play. That moment of awe. That moment of, yes, this is incredible. That's what Jesus wants. From us. He wants us to be looking in awe. But how many of us actually would just rather be really successful? How many of us look around and believe that actually it's really important that someone hears my voice? I have a place here and maybe people don't know that. Maybe some of us look around and feel completely undervalued. I'm not talking about in church necessarily, but maybe I'm talking about in life in general, how many of us feel overlooked? How many of us feel like they're not sure where their place is? And how many of us strive to be 
successful, whatever success looks like in your eyes. For young people, it's going off to university, isn't it? It's getting the grades. Or getting the best job they can possibly get. For them, that's what's set up as this is, this is what you need in life. You need a great job. Maybe for some of us, it's a promotion. It's not what Jesus is asking of us. Matthew 23 says, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Luke 14 says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest speech that Jesus makes. That most uh, people hearing it were really challenged by where he says, blessed are the meek, for they will enter the kingdom of God. And we've seen this message multiplied over and over again, all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end, especially in the Proverbs and Psalms. You don't have to look very far to realize that God is not asking us to be the best. He's not seeking perfection. How much money you make is not a marker of how great you are in the kingdom. How heard you are is not a marker of how great you are in the kingdom. It's the mark of a great leader, that moment when someone says, oh, would you lead this ministry for me? Or would you lead this team? And someone says, what? I'm sorry? You want me to do what now? That's when you know that that person is a leader because they don't expect it. They're incredibly humble. They don't see the greatness in them. What the disciples are demonstrating, however, is pick me, pick me, Jesus, I'm the best. And we all have this. We all have that inner desire to be picked. Anyone having flashbacks to PE? <laughs> we don't want to be the last person picked. But what Jesus is saying here is actually you're all picked. You're all God's children. Be willing to be the lowly person. Jesus himself washed the feet of the disciples, right? At the Last Supper. You can imagine them walking in thinking... Yes, we're getting to have dinner with Jesus. Their feet are gross, covered in mud because they've walked for miles and they only had sandals on. And there's Jesus with a bowl of water and a towel. The greatest person, Jesus, the perfect son of God, washing the feet of his friends. We must be humble. It is not a weakness. It is strength. And then we must be willing to be like a child. We must be willing to be like a child. That does not mean childish. Speaking to myself, doesn't mean childish. I know, you're all disappointed. It means childlike. It means having the faith of a child. That faith that says, if my dad says so, then it must be right. That faith that says, when my teacher tells me something, it's right. That faith that says... You lead, I'll follow. We lose it quite quickly, don't we? It's funny, I don't know what age you lost that sense of, actually, I don't know. I don't know if what they're saying is right. I don't know if my teacher definitely knows everything. 
you get, sorry, I'm looking at my child. That was a moment, sorry. Uh, that moment where you start to think, actually, maybe I do know more than them, and they're leading me. I don't know if this is right. I think it happens for all of us at different stages, but God is asking us to remember what it was like to be a little, little child that when they needed to be led somewhere, they just reached up their hand and grabbed hold of the Father's hand. That's what God's asking of us. And you know, in this church, we place a lot of value on our kids and youth ministries. We have exceptional people looking after our kids and youth. Uh, we have a lady called Lindsay. She's not in the room. Lindsay Duncan leads our primary ministry for our primary school age children. We have a lady called Carly who leads our preschool ministry, Carly McNeil, and we have Claire Bell who leads our youth ministry. These people are leading our young people in exceptional ways. They are exceptionally trustworthy. They're full of life and full of passion and they are leading our kids. And our kids are following. Our kids are following them and listening to them. We place a huge value on it because it's something Jesus asks us to do. He asks us to remember that we are children and he asks us to welcome them in. The last verse there, verse five. Anyone who welcomes a child such as this welcomes me. So about a year ago, we talked as a church about strengthening our stakes we believed um, and believe that God is asking us to put down roots, to make what we've got here strong enough to last so that in a hundred years time, there are still people experiencing the presence of God because of what we are doing. And the truth is that you're sat there because around eight years ago, a bunch of people thought we need to invest so that we can spread this church out along the Shire. People prayed for you to be sat in those seats. People prayed for every child and young person that is currently through in the other side of the building meeting with Jesus. It's exceptional. We didn't know it was gonna happen. We didn't know that this thing was gonna grow, but it has. And so we find ourselves in this position now where we've grown. We have all of you wonderful people here and we have all of those wonderful children and young people. And we have a responsibility to welcome every single one of them in to the kingdom. That means we have a responsibility to encourage one another as children of God. And we have a responsibility to make sure that our kids and youth teams are as full as they can possibly be. The truth is, guys, a year ago we tried to do a recruitment drive for our youth and for our kids' ministry. And we said to all of us, if there's any time you can give to our kids and youth ministries, you are needed. What we didn't tell you was the stark fact that actually there were four people running our kids' ministry at that point, and they're pretty tired. What we didn't tell you is that those four people are exceptional at telling our kids about Jesus, exceptional, and that they needed help. The truth is that recruitment drive recruited two people who are giving the time that they can give and that is wonderful. So if you are the, those people, I am not dissing that. And if you are someone who is on our kids team or our youth team, we love that. But the truth is, 
if we want this church to continue growing, we have to grow our kids and youth teams. The truth is, if we want this church to be here in 100 years' time and for young people to still be coming through the life of our church, the truth is we need you. We need your help. We need you to be praying for our kids. We need you to be praying for our teenagers. Life is tough, probably the toughest for them than it has been for us growing up in this digital age. We need you all to reconsider what time you could give to our kids and our youth teams. Jesus asks us to welcome children in and I think we do an exceptional job of that. I don't know how many of you have spoken to Claire or Lindsay or Carly or any of the other people on our youth or kids team. The stories that come out of there is, it, honestly, it will lighten your heart. You must speak to them. You must speak to them. They tell you stories of how this week um, the young people were learning about generosity at Christmas, a bit like reverse Advent. They were hearing about how to give rather than get at Christmas. And I heard a story of one 12-year-old boy who grabbed hold of this message and went home and said to his parents, that really cool Advent calendar that grandma makes for me every year, I don't need anything extra. Could you ask grandma if she would buy a Greg's voucher every day? The thing that's on Facebook, have you seen it? You can buy a £3 Greg voucher now, just £3 and you can give it to a homeless person. And he'd obviously seen this on social media. And so what he did was he said, can you ask grandma to do that instead? Can you ask grandma to just buy a Greg's voucher every day of December and let's give it to a homeless person so that they get something hot in their stomachs? That's incredible from a 12-year-old boy. That is childlike faith. Our little ones this year, uh, last week, sorry, we're learning about Christmas and what it really means. They were learning all about Jesus. And so they got out a huge roll of paper and started drawing things. What, what does Jesus mean to you? You need to ask Lindsay to show you the pictures of that. It is beautiful. They talk about how wonderful Jesus is. They draw pictures to Jesus, believing wholeheartedly that Jesus sees exactly what they're doing and that he's pleased with them. Our preschool children, as little as nine months, are having an incredible time in the presence of God. Age two, the child last week went home talking all about baby Jesus and how God gave us himself at Christmas. And our, well, the team's prayer had been before that. Would this child, these children who hear this message, would they take it out of our church and take it into their friendship groups and tell others? And then literally on Monday morning, we heard of a mum who went to pick up her child too from um, two's group nursery, uh, who had said all, who had told the nursery teachers and all of the children, so literally asked everyone to sit and listen to them, telling the story about Jesus. And not just the story that we all kind of know about Jesus. Jesus was born at Christmas and we celebrate his birthday, but that Jesus is the son of God and that God loves all of you, two years old. God loves all of you. That's the childlikeness that we should all have. That's the investment, all of me for all of him. And I know that all of you are doing everything that you can 
you're probably all sat there thinking, I can't believe she's just spoken about how we all need to be serving on kids' team. I've done it before. I'm so tired from it. I've done my piece. Or I can't believe she's managed to work that into a preach. She's managed to ask for people to join team. How rude. Does she know how busy I am? Does she know how tired I am? I want to be in a church that I can just come and receive. These are all things that I hear. And to be honest, I am sorry if you feel that way. But we need you. We need you. We need you to sow into the lives of our children and our young people. We need you to remember that you are children of God and that we are all on this journey together. We need you to remember that we are investing for the generations to come. Every now and again, we become like the disciples where we look inward, don't we? And we just, we're desperate for God to touch our own lives. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But I am also saying that Jesus asks us to open up the circle and invite the children in. Shall we stand?